Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning, spending some time there. Uh, and while you open up, I'm just going to share a little confession with you. Here is my confession. I have a complicated relationship with news. I have a complicated relationship with news. Maybe you can relate to me about my complicated relationship with news because uh, what I find, uh, you know, consistently again and again and again is that the news is not trustworthy, right? And I have the benefit of you not knowing what kind of news network I'm talking about, right? So that's good. But uh, every event, every event has to be read and interpreted through a filter, Right? Like, I can't just take it at face value if the news gives it to me. Every headline has to be read with that particular network's bias in mind. Right? I have to think about that. I have to take it. Like, well, how might they be motivated to craft this headline in a way that fits their agenda? Every outlet is really, really good at finding statistics that support their point of view and neglecting statistics that go against their point of view, right? Everybody is able to do this. And this is a shame because journalism used to be about truth. Like what is true? What can be trusted, right? But uh, as we look uh, again and again about finding and reporting truth and uncovering truth, now truth is actually like really, really elusive because it's all, it's all buried under headlines that have its own agenda. And so you could even be a journalist in a particular uh, network and you might be uncovering a certain kind of truth. But if it does not fit that network's agenda, you know what? You are going to be out of that network very shortly. Right, so, so every network has its own litmus test for what constitutes good news, right? And if it's not good news, it's fake news. It's fake news. If it's not good news, it's fake news, right? This is, and so uh, if one network lacks the good news that you want, you can find a network that has the good news that fits you, and uh, that works really, really well. So the number of perspectives and opinions and biases in our culture is not diminishing. In fact, I tell you, America right now is rapidly changing at a pace unseen before, rapidly changing ethnically. The rate of just ethnic diversity that exists in the United States is greater than it has ever been, right? Uh, Rapidly changing in uh, multiple ways, rapidly changing religiously, rapidly changing culturally. Like the change that is moving forward is massive. And here is the result. Every perspective has its own version of good news. Every opinion has its own version of good news that it's trying to put out into the world and trying to pull people into. And there is one thing, above all things, that is really, really clear. We live in an incredibly confused world. We can't agree on what is good news and what isn't. Right, so um, there are stories that are hidden behind language that are meant to kind of sway our perspective. And and truth has become a thing that we're told we all have to find for ourselves, right? Truth can't be trusted in the people who give it to us, so we just have, have to kind of find it for ourselves. And so in this context, our church, 
we, Alliance Bible Church, like we have committed to seeing the following things come about. Right, so, so this context of people not knowing anything about truth and people not being able to trust and there being multiple sources of good news, this is what we have. Uh, we are trying to bring about things in other people like salvation, freedom, hope, new life, abundant life, transformation, Renewal, like these are gifts that we get as a result of walking with Jesus. We want to bring them to other people. These gifts are the reason this church exists. These gifts are the reason that people even start churches. These gifts are are why missionaries get sent out around the world. These gifts point to why I am a pastor, like the motivating thing for me. These gifts point to why many of you serve. These gifts point to a possible future for your lost family, your lost friends, your lost co-workers, your lost neighbors. Salvation that leads to a changed life in the midst of a really, really confused world. So um, we've spent a lot of time, like just over the course of even, say, the last year, the last 12 months, as we have uh, you know, talked up here about equipping you, we've talked about kind of tools that you can have to go to your neighbors and your friends and your family. We've talked about the kind of attitude that we should carry with us, that we want to be really good listeners. We've talked about uh, patience, the role that patience plays. We've talked about the significance of the role of prayer as we seek to re- reach those around us. But church, only one thing is actually powerful enough to bring about new life, right? Like as much as we would try to do all of those things, and those things all have their place of value, only one thing can actually bring about new life. Only one thing is powerful enough. Only one thing can actually extend salvation. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the... Uh, for... Salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The very thing, like you talk about what we need to focus our attention on. Yes, we need to figure out how to meet people where they're at. Yes, we need to figure out how to listen to people and be hospitable. But if we do all of those things and we don't do this thing, none of it matters. Right? Because this is where the power lies. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So there's value in being winsome and tactful and hospitable. All of those things matter, but those tools in and of themselves don't save anyone. But the gospel is powerful to save people. It's really, really good news. So I think we need to ask, like, we kind of actually probably should talk about what is the gospel? So here's my question for you. I have have several of them. When a five-year-old comes up to you and asks you, what is the gospel? Like, do you know what you will say? Can you say it in a simple enough way that we'll be able to connect to them? That they, they will actually like be able to understand and take in. When your neighbor is open to hearing about your faith, you've done all of this work of hospitality and welcoming them and being authentic, what will you say? When your friend asks you, I'm curious, like you seem to know God. 
I'm wondering, how can I know God more deeply? What are you going to say? Right? Like you want to make sure that your words have power in that moment. Right? So you want to make sure that you speak with resounding clarity into the midst of a really confusing situation. So part of my job as a pastor, literally, like if you read any job description for people who lead the church in the book of Ephesians, it is to equip. Like part of my job is to make sure that you have everything you need to in that moment have the right words to speak when people ask you, how do I take a next step? How do I go deeper? So this morning, our focus is on the gospel. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to answer four questions. The first question is, what does the gospel do? Our second question is, what is the gospel? What is the kind of uncomplicated, simple, clear gospel? Our third question is, what are the most common false gospels? And then finally, we'll ask the question that we ask all the time, which is, so what? All right. So first, uh, there are some things we need to get really clear on this. What does the gospel do. So I have just four four key things every telling of the gospel does. So number one, it tells Jesus's story. The gospel tells Jesus's story. It is good news, not because it is about us, but it is about Jesus. And for what it's worth, storytelling has fallen out of significant place in our culture, but it is making a resurgence, right? There is a value for telling really, really good stories, and we just happen to have the best story. So the way that you tell the story may actually change from person to person, Like you might use different illustrations to kind of connect to this bigger story. You might use a miracle of Jesus to kind of connect to the gospel. You might uh, tell a parable to connect that to the gospel. You might take examples of these and you, you may even change the things that you emphasize from person to person, from culture to culture, depending on their background. And we actually see this to be true of the evangelists in the Bible. Right? When they go and share the gospel, they will look at the people that they're trying to share it to, and they'll say, okay, these people need this thing emphasized for them. They tell the whole thing, but they kind of dig deeper into certain parts. The whole point, though, is it tells a story. Specifically, it tells Jesus' story. Second thing the gospel does is it establishes key propositions. So uh, this is what a proposition is. A proposition is an objective claim about truth. Uh, It's something that you can either, like, you can look at that claim and say, yes, that is true, or no, that is not true. So no matter how you shift or reemphasize the story, believing the gospel means, at the very least, believing some really key claims about truth. Right? So, So not every gospel narrative in the Bible actually contains every proposition because uh, the person giving the gospel think, uh, understands that their audience already has some of that information. An example that we're going to look at in just a second is Paul's going to use the word Christ like the people he's talking to know what the word Christ means. You know how many people in our culture today know what the word Christ means? No, actually, like what you say or what you mean when you say that, right? That's the thing that we have to explain that Paul didn't have to explain, but it is a part of the key propositions. So, so this is where we're actually going to focus our energy this morning. What are kind of those key propositions that every single telling of the gospel should contain? 
The third thing that the gospel does, it connects to the listener. So this narrative is meant to be told in such a way. And if you, if you read the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they write like this. They write to help you see yourself in the story. To help you see the place where you fit. Like in the Gospel of Mark, he talks about the disciples. He intends for the reader to see themselves as one of the disciples. The disciples who keep turning their back on Jesus and turning their back on Jesus and failing Jesus, right? Right? This is the, the, any telling of the Gospel. It's, it provides a way for people to connect to the listener. It's meant to help each of us long for the hope and salvation that Jesus has to offer. Right? We see ourselves somehow connected to this story. It's meant to better help us understand our own brokenness. And so the gospel is good news for all because it is a story that offers an invitation to every person who hears it. And so finally, the fourth thing it does is this. It calls for repentance. Right? So the gospel, if we understand it, if we get it into our soul, it leads us to brokenness over our own selves because we recognize how far we fall short. But then it doesn't leave us there. It gives us hope, hope in Jesus. And that hope in Jesus would call for a decision to change, to stop being, stop making ourselves the God of our life and submit to the real God of our life, to surrender. The Bible calls this repentance. It's not a popular word right now, but the reality is, is what the gospel, when we are confronted with it and it shows us, and if we really understand it, it leads us out of brokenness to hope and saying, all to Jesus I surrender. So for the non-Christian, the response when they hear the gospel is, turn from your own way and start following Jesus. Right? But the gospel for what it's worth, isn't just for people who don't believe in Jesus. The gospel is for us too. The gospel is the thing that we keep coming back to and keep coming back to. For Christians, the response for us is pursue Jesus more deeply because we still have things that we need to repent of. So turn away from sin, walk by the Spirit, overcome habitual patterns, love your God, love your neighbor, find your purpose in His mission. Every time we hear the gospel, it would push us another step deeper and another step deeper into what He has for us. It calls for a response, calls for repentance. So this is what the gospel accomplishes. We're going to turn our attention to the propositions now, the content of the gospel. Okay, what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Gospel literally means good news. And in 1 Corinthians, there's something happening. There is disunity in the church. There is rampant sin in the church. There are pointless arguments happening in the church. There are people fighting over spiritual gifts in the midst of a bunch of false teachers. And all of this is happening. They're trying to, these false teachers come along and they're trying to convince people that what they do with their bodies doesn't matter uh, because the physical world is passing away. You can just live however you want to live. And, and Paul kind of steps into the midst of all of this confusion and says, let's get back to what's most important, right? He says, let's get really clear about something. Let's remember the gospel. So verses one and two says, I would remind you brothers of the gospel. I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. Notice he's noting the response here that they had to the gospel. He understands 
when I proclaim this to you, you did something with it. You responded. You turned. You received it. He's saying you decided to follow Jesus. You took on a new faith. You could have rejected what I said. You could have ignored it. But instead, what you did is you received it. And so that response was initial, but that response is ongoing because he's saying, you didn't just receive it. You are currently standing in it. It is the thing that is making you stand up. So, so there's that response piece. We see that. Uh, then in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word that I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Here he's talking about kind of the implications, the the listener seeing themselves in the story. This is how this story relates to you. It is the thing that is working out your salvation. It is the thing that is making salvation possible. And uh, you know what? I want to make sure that you stay stuck to it. Right? I don't, I don't want, I want to make sure that that, that, experience that you had, that belief that you had, that it really was true. He challenges, basically says, I'm going to share the gospel and I want you to reaffirm it with me. Right? Because all of the possible confusion that could be going on, we need something to unify around. So let's unify around this. So then he goes into it. Here's the story and the key propositions. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. Here's what's most important. So 1 Corinthians 15.3. That Christ, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ. So, Remember earlier, certain propositions, uh, they don't need to be explained because Paul knows that his audience understands what he is talking about. It's kind of assumed inside the audience. This is that place for Paul in the Corinthians. He doesn't have to explain this. We have to explain it. So just to get really clear, when Paul says Christ, this is what he is saying. He is saying God in the flesh. Christ is God in the flesh. The Messiah, the promised one who was coming and who was finally revealed to Israel. And when we come to understand it, he is God with us. He is God in the flesh, Christ. And that Christ did something. Namely, goes on in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So let's just focus on the sins part real quick. The story of Christ is a story directly connected to human rebellion. Like we are at odds with God. That is kind of the human story. And the gospel of John reminds, like if we read the gospel of John, it reminds the reader again and again and again. uh, Human hearts are broken. Jesus knew their hearts and knew that their hearts were discerning evil. Our hearts are deceitful. We can't be trusted. Like even our our best efforts, even the things that we do really, really good at, like the good that we try to accomplish is even laced with motivations that are self-exalting, right? Like with things that are trying to rob glory from God because our hearts are actually bent against giving God any kind of glory for the lives that we live, right? So we are sinful, and this is what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Isaiah 53, what he's, he's actually referencing some very specific scripture here. 
that Christ died for our sins. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus before he was born, and this is what it says. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You know who we are? We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus stood in our place and was punished for our sins, for the sins of his followers. So the only way that we can be at peace with God is by his blood. So he willingly died in our place. We are sinful, but he died for our sins. And 1 Corinthians 15, 4. He was buried. He was really dead. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here's where the good news gets really, really good. The one who died for us did not stay dead. He rose. He proved that he was powerful to conquer sin and death. That he could actually be the one to stand in our place for us and declare that this no longer defines you. I'm showing that I have power over it. So take note of something. In 1 Corinthians 15, 4 and 5, it says... He makes this emphasis that he was buried. And then also in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So recognize what Paul is doing. Paul knows that he is making propositional truth claims. He is making claims about things that not may happen, not things that might have happened, but things that actually did happen happen. So when he says that he was buried, what he's really saying is we know he was dead because we put him in the ground. He was covered up for three days, right? Like he was definitely dead. Breath had left his body. This was not a mistake. And this is important because there were people going around trying to say, well, you know, Jesus didn't really die. That's how he was able to raise from the dead. No, he was actually dead. That's what Paul is saying. And then uh, it says he appeared to people. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then it goes on and lists other people that he appeared to after that. Why is this important? Because in this moment that he's writing, he's trying to tell the Corinthians, there are people that you can talk to right now, hundreds of them who saw Jesus with their own eyes after he rose from the dead. He is making propositional truth claims that are verifiable. So then... um, it doesn't stop there. If you skip ahead in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians to verse 28, it says, verse 28 is kind of all the way through 1 Corinthians. It's talking about what happens to us as a result of being joined to Jesus and what Jesus is able to accomplish in the world. And so we'll kind of sum that up with verse 28. It says, when all things are subjected to him. So he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. But there's a day coming when all things are subjected to him. Then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Jesus' story did not end at the resurrection. He is coming back. 
right? Like we are in the middle of the story right now and we are awaiting that day when he is going to return. He's coming back to rule. He's coming back to judge. He's coming back to make the world the way it was supposed to be. Death undone. Wrongdoing gone forever. Peace reigning. Creation flourishing with no more corruption. Church, this is really, really good news. Okay, so let's go back. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Right, the implication of this good news, the part that connects to us as listeners, the part that brings us into the story, is that if we trust him, he will save us. Right, trust him and be saved. That's the response, that's the connection piece. So, so here it is, the gospel, as simply as we could put it, Based on what Paul gives us here, the gospel, Jesus, God in the flesh, died for sins, rose from the dead, and will return to make the world right. Trust him and be saved. Right? Like if you want to condense the gospel down into its simplest form, this is it. Actually, could we put, is it possible for us to put that back up on the screen? The, the gospel piece, the gospel, Jesus, God in the flesh died for our sins, rose from the dead and will return to make the world right. Trust him and be saved. Right. So so there are maybe multiple ways you could tell a story that contains these pieces. Right. But all these pieces need to be included. Like this is what the gospel is. If we condense it down into its simplest version, this is how people come to understand that there is a God who loves them. Because he was willing to make a way, though we are sinful, for us to be able to be with him, to be in relationship. He is doing something in the world to take this broken world and make it right. So trust him and be saved. So these are, that's, the, that's the proposition piece. So, uh, so in any telling, you may choose to kind of delve the depths of some of these propositions but here is the power of God. So uh, I'll tell you something else. Ever since there has been a gospel, forces have worked to corrupt that same gospel. Ever since it has been in existence, ever since there's been a story of Jesus, there have been people and forces trying to co-opt that story of Jesus and use it for their own purposes. And there are two forces, namely humans and Satan, right? Humans, we, we kind of try to change this story and make it work for us because it hits us at our pride. Nobody likes to be told that we are broken and in need of help and we can't do anything about it. 
right? It hits us in a place that affects us. Satan tries to co-opt it because he hates seeing people find salvation, right? So both of these kind of forces work together to corrupt this gospel. And here's, here's how it happens. Kind of Satan, the father of lies, he will bombard our culture with so many perversions of the gospel that appeal to our hearts, right? That unequipped people will easily give ground to. Give ground to a gospel that does not save. Give ground to a gospel that robs glory from God. Give ground to a gospel that permits self-righteousness and pride. And, and these corruptions, they do one of three things. And that's what we're going to talk about. These corruptions of the gospel, they do one of three things. They either subtract from the true gospel, they add something to the true gospel, or they substitute something in the true gospel. Okay, so, so let's give some examples to see what we're talking about here. What are the most common false gospels? We're going to talk about subtractions first. So subtractions. Uh, the first one is the God is love gospel. God is love. Now, you can find a verse in the Bible that will certainly tell you that God is love. But here's the problem. We filter that through our own lens of what we think love is. And so in the God is love gospel, you hear something like a God of love would never send a person to hell, would never hold a person accountable for sin. It subtracts the idea of sin the idea of salvation, the idea of God's justice, the idea that Jesus would have to stand in our place as a substitute. So the, the second of the subtractions, the spiritual metaphor gospel. This says something like, Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead. Jesus didn't actually physically die on the cross. Uh, that was all kind of a metaphor, right? Jesus didn't even necessarily have to walk the earth. Because we just see Jesus kind of, the story of Jesus is a metaphor for love. The kind of love that God wants us all to carry to one another. It takes away actual things that historically happened and accomplished something real for people's salvation. Right? It subtracts an actual historical resurrection. Right? And if the resurrection didn't happen, I mean, right there in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the gospel. He says, if the resurrection didn't happen, we ought to pack up and go home. Right? We're wasting our time. So that's subtractions. Let's talk about additions. Uh, additions typically come because people love uh, religion uh, so much that they will try to add some piece of religion or try to make religion such a big part of their lives that to kind of give them a sense of control over what's happening. So some additions. Uh, the good works gospel, right? This is, for what it's worth, the basis of all theistic religions besides Christianity. The idea that you have to perform to do more good deeds than you do bad deeds. And if you do enough good deeds, you will actually be able to earn your way into salvation, right? So this is what it adds to the gospel. It adds my good and religious works as significant in working out my salvation and being responsible for my salvation. It makes me and my works bigger than they actually are. So that's the good works gospel. The, the second one is the universal gospel. So this is how the universal gospel adds. Uh, it says that there are not just one God, but there is the possibility of many gods 
And Jesus might be a God among those gods. He might even be the most important of those gods, right? What he, he did might be most significant, but they essentially suggest you could believe in any slew of gods. And, and you know what? At the end of the day, what Jesus did allows you to believe in those other people. And so he's just going to forgive you and welcome you. And so uh, the, the idea is that there are multiple possible ways to salvation. And other gods are real and viable options of working out true religion, right? This is what uh, happens to the gospel. So that's the universal gospel. Uh, and then I will add a third one here, which is the political gospel. So it'll essentially say, hey, it's good that you believe in Jesus, right? It's good that you kind of, uh, you know, love him and that's important. But really, what really matters is that you adopt a particular political agenda and even a cultural mantra that you have to recite. You have to agree with us on these core tenets. And if you agree with us, then you show yourself to actually be saved. Okay. So, uh, so those are the additions. Here are the substitutions. In all of the substitutions, Essentially what happens is that the false gospels will tell you about a different problem that exists besides sin and try to solve that problem. It'll tell you a different story about what your greatest need is. So the prosperity gospel will substitute a lack of prosperity, a lack of financial wealth, a lack of kind of wherewithal in the world. It will substitute that and say, that is your greatest need. That is the thing that you most need solved. Not forgiveness of sin, but this. And so this is what the gospel is about and can accomplish for you. The liberation gospel. The liberation gospel says your biggest problem is that you are an oppressed person. And that what the gospel can do for you is it can free you as an oppressed person person from some kind of social oppression. Your greatest need is to be set free from a form of social oppression, and it will kind of substitute that need in place of forgiveness of sin. The self-help gospel says that your greatest need is to kind of just like get the right motivation, right? If you can discover the right motivation, you can start to figure, eight, figure out things for yourself and live your best life right now. Right? And so if you do this, you'll be able to take reasonable steps and not focus on what you really need, which is forgiveness of sin. Uh, the social gospel. The social gospel will substitute poverty and the existence of need and will say that that is our greatest problem. And that is the thing that the gospel has come to solve. And we'll forget about the forgiveness of sin piece. So hear me. Is it right and good and actually commanded for Christians to care for the poor? Yes. Is it right and good for Christians to stand up for the rights of those who are having their rights diminished? It's a good thing. Right? Those are all reasonable things. But those are not the core problem that the gospel has come to solve. 
Wait, we participate in those things, caring for the poor and caring for the needy. We participate in even pleading the cause of those, like seeking out refugees, recognizing the, the oppression of their situation, trying to fi- find a place to help them and caring for people around the world who are experiencing oppression of various kinds. And we're not going to be able to solve all of that, right? Like that's not going to be solved until Jesus comes back, but it's something that we focus our attention on. It's something that we care about. However, those things are not the problem that Jesus has come to solve. Right now, he might lead us to participate in resolving those things, but those are not the key problem. The key problem is that every single individual in our hearts, we are in rebellion with God, and he has come to resolve that for us. So trust him and be saved. So so what's the point of even walking through all of those. The point is we live in an incredibly confused world. And right now, Christians, I mean, all of those versions of the gospel exist out there in some uh, various churches, right? We're not helping the confusion. But people at this church, like he's doing every, Satan is doing everything he can to perpetuate the confusion. And, And we are tasked with walking out into the midst of it and providing a simple and clear gospel that proclaims the centrality of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what? This is our last question this morning. So what? I just have two for us. The first one. True conversion requires two levels of understanding. So the first is the part where we play a role. That's the part of intellectual understanding. And for what it's worth, these you used to be able to maybe sit down with a person you were sharing the gospel with and kind of share with them in two minutes what the gospel was. And, and maybe they would like make a decision right there. That is significantly less and less becoming the case. What it would probably look like is over the course of months, looking at different pieces of these propositions and digging into them and, and, and seeing the grace that it reveals and, and seeing the goodness and actually like kind of working through people's hang-ups over certain of the other propositions, right? So the, the point is, though, we kind of have this participatory role where we are sharing the good news and helping people navigate and not having all the answers. It's okay to not have all the answers to kind of come back and, uh, you know, talk to somebody else and say, Hey, I don't know that, but let's, uh, let me think on that. Let me talk to some people I know. I'll come back to you. Right. Like we're just walking through relationship and working through these piece by piece. But, uh, then it would take us a level deeper, right? There's this intellectual understanding, and people definitely need to have that. Like, you need to be able to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. Right? But then there is a level of spiritual understanding that is required. Right? Because each proposition shows us something of our own brokenness. It shows us something of how far we fall short. and shows us something of how good... Jesus is to extend to us grace. And let me tell you, no word that you speak will bring about the brokenness required for a person to discover that they need to trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that. 
the Holy Spirit is the one who breaks up hearts, who plows them, who creates that brokenness, who causes a person to realize he brings conviction of sin, right? He causes a person to realize what, what they've done, who they have become, and then to be willing to receive the amazing gift of life that Jesus has to offer through his death and burial and resurrection. Right, so, so think of the Philippian jailer. We read that story earlier today in our service. The jailer is, is there, and Paul and Silas, they have been arrested, and they are singing hymns and talking about Jesus all the time. And I, this guy probably is just like hardened to what they're saying, hardened to what they're talking about, like nothing. He just doesn't really care all that much about it until a moment comes when his life is on the line. And then when his life is on the line, do you know what the Christians do? They stay there so that he doesn't lose his life for losing the people who were in his jail. They stay. And so something strikes him about this, right? The, the Holy Spirit works in the midst of this situation to take this guy who is probably ambivalent to the gospel and break him down and show him his own brokenness. And what does he say? He says, show me what I need to do to be saved. And they tell him the gospel. And he gets baptized. And his whole house gets baptized with him. Right? So I say all of that to say, yes, we, we tell. But we pray too. We pray that God would break up the ground of people's hard hearts. So there's that. And then the last thing that I want to share with you is a tool called three Circles. Now, for what it's worth, I will send this link to this video out to all of you this week so you can kind of review it. Um, the Southern Baptist Church has kind of uh, made a big effort over the course of the last three or four years to not just equip pastors to be able to share the gospel, but to equip the people in their churches to share the gospel. And so a guy named Jimmy Scroggins came up with this tool called Three Circles. And so we're going to watch the video right now. And uh, this, this is a tool where you can imagine sitting, sitting in a coffee shop with somebody, sitting at a restaurant with somebody, taking out a napkin that's sitting there with you. They, uh, you, you might ask, would you mind if I share with you like kind of how I see things? Or they might ask you, you know, what is your faith? How, how do I take a step deeper with God? And this could be a tool that you use to kind of go deeper with them. So let's see this tool now. This is a tool called the Three Circles, and this tool can be used to both share the gospel and study the scriptures. Today, I'm going to share with you how you can use this to share the gospel. The world is full of brokenness. We don't have to look very far to see pain and people hurting each other, doing whatever it takes to try to distance themselves from their pain. Even things that are not bad in and of themselves, sometimes people will use food, entertainment like Netflix, or things that are overtly bad, um, they'll begin to hold things against each other, even murdering each other. Problem is these things are like rubber bands and they work for a while, distancing us from our pain and brokenness. But then they snap us right back and we find ourselves in this brokenness worse than it was before. But that was not God's original design. He had in his heart perfection, a place of no pain uh, a design for the world for you and me that had no pain, no heartache, none of that brokenness. The only problem is that man ran from that through sin, finding ourselves in this place of brokenness, rubber banding back and forth with no hope. But the hope is that God sent Jesus, who came down from heaven, who died on a cross, 
and was raised from the dead and became by his overcoming death king over all brokenness. And for all who will turn and believe, he will grow them back into his original design and even send them to go into brokenness to bring others out. Now, as you begin to ask people uh, or begin to show people this, you can ask them the following questions. Number one, where are you right now? Oftentimes people will say, I'm right here. And then you can ask them this follow-up question. Where do you want to be? Hopefully they'll say, I want to be here in God's original design. And uh, when they ask that, when they answer that, you can simply say, all you have to do is turn and believe and lead, lead them in a simple prayer that's not a magic formula, but a way to begin to take steps to grow. Now, if they say they're right here and they think that they've begun to respond already, you can say, well, the evidence that you've begun to respond is this. Are you growing? Because like organic things, Christians grow. You cannot stop growing. So the evidence that you've begun to turn and believe and have a changed life is that you grow and are increasingly becoming more like uh, God's original design in the way that you do relationships and the way that you live all parts of your life. Yeah. I would be happy to, to send that out to you and share that with you. Um, there are multiple even versions of just that tool online. Uh, but I think I like, want to say right now, maybe you are listening this morning and you yourself have not turned and believed in Jesus. Right? Maybe you're listening and you uh, hear about the brokenness or you, you, you're kind of drawing nearer to Jesus, but you don't know exactly what it means to trust him. I just, I would invite you this morning, place your trust in Jesus. Trust him and be saved. Step into the good news. Step into the life that he has to offer you. So if you want to do this this morning, I'm going to pray a prayer for us. I would invite you to pray that along with me. And then if you're here in person, I'd invite you to come up and talk to me. If you're online, I'd invite you to reach out to me. My, my uh, email is on the website. Uh, but yeah, just let us know that you took that step. We would really appreciate it. So church, I'd invite you to pray with me this morning. Jesus, I know that so many of the people in this worship service, both at home and here in person, Lord, I know that so many of us have seen our own brokenness. And we've seen our own weaknesses. God, we've seen the extent to which we do not deserve to be welcomed into relationship with you. And yet you welcomed us into relationship. You sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins. And so, Lord, I, I know that so many people in this room, we trust you. We believe in you. And I don't know what next step of repentance, what next step of deeper life with you that the people in this room would have to take. But, Lord, I pray that the, the goodness of your gospel would so enliven our hearts that we would not hesitate to take those next steps because you have done great things for us and we are glad. Yeah, but for anybody listening today who, who has not trusted you, I pray that, Spirit, you would awaken their hearts. 
You would plow up the ground. You would bring conviction of sin, awareness of brokenness. And, and Lord, that you would lead anyone listening to repentance, to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to say that I believe Jesus Christ came, God in the flesh, died for my sins, rose from the dead, and is coming back to make the world right. Jesus, thank you for the gift of salvation, the gift of hope, the gift of new life, the gift of abundant life, that we would get to walk deeper with you. And this morning we pray that you would lead us to be the kind of people who could share the powerful gospel with our family and our friends, our neighbors and our co-workers who desperately need to hear it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.